My guest in this episode is Australian-based Deborah Philippin, who has been the head of business development Asia-Pacific for global law firm Pinsent Mason since 2017. Prior to this, she was the director of business development APAC for KNL Gates, where she was for eight years. And prior to that, she held BD and marketing roles for law firms in Tokyo, where she lived for 10 years. She's a passionate advocate for the future of BD and marketing in the legal profession and has spoken at many conferences and written several articles on client development and client experience strategy, innovation, technology, and most recently BD and brand building post the pandemic. In her non-working life, she's a mother of two boys and a board director for the No to Violence charity, which is leading the change to end male family violence in Australia. How does she do it all? Let's dive in and find out. Welcome to the podcast, Deborah. Thank you, Graham. Thanks for that intro. Now, referencing your Japanese experience, there's a Japanese proverb you may know, which is ocean thousand, mountain thousand, which roughly translated means someone who's had a lot of experience and can handle any situation. Does this resonate with you? <laughs> can I say no? <laughs> you can. <laughs> no, it absolutely resonates with me. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm one of these people who like to be really busy. So thus okay. the, uh, the multiple roles, let's say, that I have. We will get into that. So one of the features of deep CV diving is we ask our guests to set their favourite interview question, which we then ask the next guest. And our previous guest was Danielle Bond, the CMO of Oricon, also in Australia. And she set you her favourite interview question, which is this. If we were to ask managers you report into, colleagues you work with, and people who report into you, what words they would use to describe working with you, what would they say? Ah, Danielle. Okay, I'll be talking to her next time I see her about <laughs> this one. Um, this is a this is a hard one, but I think what I think they would say is that I am fair, uh, that I fight for my team and fight for something that I feel very strongly about. So yeah, someone who's got a lot of integrity that is willing to stand up for what I believe in. Mm-hmm which is mostly the people in my team, I think. Good. Okay. Let's go right back to the beginning. And with you, that would be when you graduated in 1998 with a degree in arts with an honours in Japanese, followed by a master's of law, which you took in Tokyo. I mean, there's a podcast there just on that experience. Can you share with (laughs) us, why did you choose that study? Well, the first thing I say to you is all these dates are going to get people to figure out how old I was and yeah, I graduated when I was about 14. So let's, let's put that well, I got out of high school and I actually didn't really know what I wanted to study. That's mm-hmm. completely honest. And I just knew that I wanted to do something really, really hard, really difficult. And so someone said, well, you should study Japanese. And I was like, well, that's not really going to get me anywhere. What, what's that going to achieve? And mm-hmm. Around the time that I was studying Japanese or around the time that I chose to study Japanese, Paul Keating was talking, which is our prime minister, one of our previous prime ministers in Australia, was talking a lot about that Australia in the future should be led by someone who has a degree from a university in Asia. So, and, and this was the 90s, so the focus on Asia was was fairly big and the focus on Japan was big because they were our number one trading partner. So, that led me to go to university, study Japanese, and um, I studied a few other things in in first year, as we all do. I think everyone did psychology in mm-hmm. first year, mm-hmm. so I did that as well. But I was really quite interested in Japan and 
Japanese. So I started doing that and that led me to spending 10 years in Japan. Mm. Oh, you, I'm interested, I'm going to pick up on, you said you wanted to do something really, really hard and difficult. <laughs> why? <laughs> I don't know. I've asked myself over many years, I'm not sure why I choose difficult projects or um, difficult challenges. Um, why do I do, do that? I think because the learning is immense. Mm-hmm. I think that when you take on something that's quite challenging, so I'm thinking about studying guitar, for example, and a lot of people say guitar is easy, but then others say, no, it's really hard if you're going to do it well. So that excites me because I think it's that whole reward that comes at the end of studying something difficult. Mm -hmm. You actually feel like, wow, I started from nothing and I got to something. And I think that for me has always been quite rewarding Mm -hmm. because my view is that people can do anything. You know, there's sometimes you have conversations and people say, oh, I can't run or I can't swim or I can't draw. Mm-hmm. I actually don't believe that. I think that people can do absolutely anything if they set their mind to it. And I feel like I'm a kind of product of that. Mm-hmm. There's no way I thought that I could learn Japanese and study Japanese and have Japanese friends and communicate in Japanese, but yet I can. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's why I did it. And why did you choose law? So you, you went to Tokyo and did language, but mm-hmm. then you decided to do law while you were there. So what was it about law that interested you? I always found diplomacy rather than law. I found diplomacy really interesting. So, and that's connected to law, of course. So I found things like international relations, I know international law, that, that was what attracted me to the degree Mm -hmm. because the degree based in Tokyo was an international relations degree, but studying in the faculty of law. Mm -hmm. So the legal topics were not so much the traditional law subjects that are lawyers say in Australia would would do to become a lawyer they were more around international law and diplomacy and all of those areas which really fascinated me because I thought when I took the degree that I would end up working for say a world bank or a united nations mm-hmm. and those organizations were were of interest to me mm-hmm. reflecting back on what you learned in your study has any of it been useful in your later career absolutely i think that even today like some of the elements around Uh, how countries talk to each other through trade and how they set up agreements and things like free trade agreements, for example. They're really important in the work that we do as directors of business development in firms because once there's an FTA signed and sealed, that opens up opportunities for legal areas and business areas. And that might be the movement of people across nations or that might be just you know, free trade and regulations changing across countries that allow investment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all of those subjects that I was doing in that degree are highly relevant to what I'm doing today, particularly across Asia-Pacific, because there's a number of FTAs, as you know, in place or mm-hmm. being discussed that that impact the, the region. Mm-hmm. So what was your first real job? You did all this study, and then what did you do when you graduated? That's a really good question. So this is the kind of the turning point because I got out of the degree and it was a really hard degree. I will say that straight up. Mm -hmm. I remember four months into the degree calling my mum, crying my eyes out, saying, why have I decided to do this? This is way too hard. Like I can't understand what they're saying. They're all talking Japanese. They're talking about nuclear proliferation of weapons and I can't even understand that in English, let alone (laughs) Japanese. And So I just, she listened to me cry and mum said something really profound as mothers do and said, okay, um, you've got two choices. You can like get on a plane tomorrow and come home and the degree's done, but I know you. And I know that if you do that, you'll have regrets. 
So how about this? You keep going for another four weeks and you see how that goes. And if it's all too hard, you can still get on that plane and come home. But, you know, go and have a chat to your professor about how you're feeling, how it's all really hard and then see how you go. So I did. I went in the next day, cried to my professor and said, I'm finding this all really hard. I know I'm on a Japanese government scholarship. I don't think I can do it. And he just said the same thing. Give it another four weeks. See how you go. So um, I got out of that degree and it was a really hard degree, but I passed, of course, and I actually came out winning winning an award for for my master's thesis. Of course, and I said to my, is. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect to, but I submitted it and I won this award, and I was like, wow. Um, and I said to my professor, you know, I've kind of done this degree, and I'm not sure about that ultimate career goal of working for the United Nations or World Bank. I just, you know, I feel like that maybe is something I do a bit later on. And he said well, you know, you can always just get a job in private practice or in a corporate in Japan and see how that goes. And yes, you can do that a bit later on. So how about you go and apply for some jobs in Tokyo and see how you go? So you would have seen on my CV, my first job out of university was working for a um, Japanese government-sponsored, it was basically the the organisation that administered the national English examination for everyone in Japan. Mm -hmm. So I did that for about, I think, 18 months and um, really great experience working for a Japanese company. It's something I recommend for anyone working in Japan. Probably not something I would do in a hurry again because I found myself just, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Give me something else. And this is where the busy part of me comes in. But that's what really got me into marketing and that's what got me very interested in the whole marketing a company or marketing an English language test. And um, then that led me to the next job, which was at Lovells. So it, it, what's fascinating is that your your career is marketing and business development, but but mm-hmm. really the marketing was learned on the job in your first job. Yes. You didn't do a marketing degree. No. Nope. Um, which is really interesting to reflect back on, given the career path that you probably thought you were going to take. Um, so you yes. joined um, at that time the firm Lovells, now Hogan Lovells. You joined that, the firm Lovells as a, in a marketing role. And, and, and thinking back to that time, marketing in law firms was actually, you know, quite sort of um, basic, wasn't it? It was really, mm. it wasn't as sophisticated as it was now. So talk us through what that what that job was and how you felt about doing that job, given where you'd come from. Mm. So it was a really good, it, I, I call it a, the place where I cut my teeth in business development and marketing. And the reason that I call it that is because when I took the interview at Lovells, I sat in front of the, the Tokyo office managing partner and he said to me, um, he said, well, you've got this kind of master's in law and you've done this degree and you feel like you're overqualified for the job that you've applied for. And I said to him, well, what's the job that I applied for? Because I think the advertisement that I responded to was something like office helper or office something very vague and administrative administrative assistant slash group secretary slash slash something and I said well and he said what do you want to do and I said well I'm really interested in the marketing and business development side of things and I don't I know nothing about that for law firms but I'm I'm really keen to maybe set that up here because they didn't have a department that was technically or, or officially BD and he said well, you know what, that would be great. You can come in, you can set up the department, but we also want you to like change the server tapes in the IT room and we want you to be the group secretary and we want you to be the executive assistant to the managing part to me and, yeah, can you do all those things? <laughs> I remember just looking at him saying, yeah, I think I can. Just let me let, let me see, really. And um, 
Yeah, so I ended up taking this multifaceted role where I did change server tapes wow. in the IT room. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I did um, manage eight secretaries. Um, never had any management experience before, but he's like, that's it. He saw me talking to about three or four of them. He's like, that's it. You're managing these people. I'm like, what? I've just, I've never managed people before. And he's like, no, no, you're doing it. So that's it. That's your job now. And uh, so I did lots of stuff. But again, my passion or the, the area that I really wanted to make a difference in was the marketing and BD. And you're right. It wasn't sophisticated. I had to clean up interaction contacts. I had to get the bids and the capability statements in a decent state, able to to be sent to clients. Uh, I had to run events and make sure those are, were really polished because we were putting on, we had a lot of really sophisticated clients in Tokyo. So I got the help to do all of that from a BD manager sitting in the Singapore office. And I'll never forget her because she was so amazing in coaching me. And I would call her and say things like, like I have to run this event and I've never run an event before. So where do I even start? Where are the tablecloths? <laughs> <laughs> and she would be like, uh, yeah, you need to get a catering company and, you know, I don't know who they use, but just Google catering companies in Tokyo and someone will come up. So I had to learn from scratch yeah. all of these things that BD assistants all over the globe are doing in their jobs today. Yeah. And I largely just like used, yeah, people and contacts and and just found my way through it all and set up the department Mm. which was a really huge achievement for me let's take our first deep dive here to reflect on what we've heard so far several things stand out for me firstly her absolute determination to learn and to put herself in situations where she wasn't the expert in the room secondly that even though she had achieved academically she wasn't put off by taking a job that had no job description and that involved the most basic of duties including changing the server tapes because ultimately she saw opportunity and was prepared to give it a go this is becoming a common theme of these interviews and it's worth reflecting on as often the most impressive careers are built by taking risks. Let's return to the interview to hear what she did next. You then went to Linklaters and did a stint there. And then after nearly a decade in Tokyo, you returned to Melbourne and you took a role with a relatively small national firm at that time. I just wonder, was there any sort of culture shock? Tokyo to Melbourne, (laughs) Linklaters to small national, you know, Massive, massive culture shock. And um, I obviously had a lot of choice when I was, uh, when I made the decision to come back to Melbourne, it was about a year before I actually came back to Melbourne. I'm one of these people that don't, doesn't make decisions really quickly. I need a good period of time to go, right, going back to Melbourne on this date. And it was 12 months that I set myself and um, I went to recruiters around October. So I set the date that I would leave by the December of that year. I set the date in January, got to, got to recruiters in around October. And I met with all of the big firms because that was just the natural step ahead. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. just go and meet with all of the major firms in Australia. But um, I was also really quite burnt out. And when I say burnt out, I don't mean in a negative way. I worked really, really hard at Lovells and Linklaters. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just something that was expected. It was very cutthroat. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tokyo is a pretty cutthroat place to live people work long hours so and I after I met with a lot of firms and I got to Middleton's 
I really liked the feel of the firm and it felt very, you know, culture focused and I've always chosen firms for culture. So I, I liked the idea of that. And so I ended up obviously taking the offer and coming back. I'll never forget. I came back to the Linklater's partners in Tokyo and they were all like, you know, so where are you going? Cause they knew I was leaving. I was like, I'm going to Middleton's and they're like, what, <laughs> what? <laughs> people from Linklater's don't move to a firm like Linklater uh, to, to Middleton's. Like what, what, why would you choose a kind of mid-tier firm? And I said, because I just like the sound of, of the firm. Anyway, it was a great firm, but the culture shock was very real. And to give an example of the culture shock, I discovered in my first month at Middleton's, I discovered that we were doing a response to a tender from the Sydney office and the Melbourne office to the same client. And I remember picking that up going, okay, what's going on here? We're responding to a client tender. Like two officers are doing this same tender. And he said, um, I'll never forget, he said, oh, Deb, you may have forgotten this about Australia because you've been in Tokyo for 10 years, but there's a bit of a cultural difference between Sydney and Melbourne. And I was like, what? I've just come back from Tokyo (laughs) and you're talking to me about cultural differences between Melbourne and Sydney. Sorry, I don't agree. Um, But yes, it was, it was huge. It was a huge culture shock. And the other thing that was really shocking was when you go from a global firm to an Australian firm, you really sense the difference in the kind of size of the matters Mm -hmm. and I remember when I got my first matter report at Middleton's, I was looking for the extra zeros at the end of the matters. <laughs> so I was like, hang on, this doesn't seem right. After, you know, looking at those Linklater's billings for a long period, it was it was a bit of a shock. But you get used to it, yeah, particularly because I was Australian or I'm Australian. And rather fortuitously or, or not, you'll tell me in a minute, the firm then merged with KL Gates, one of the biggest US firms in the world at that yes. time and it was a it was a time when global firms were looking at Australian firms to expand their reach mm-hmm. there so how did that affect your role because you were there for eight years I mean how did that impact you yeah that was pretty massive actually because at the time of the merger discussions I had had um my second child so when I was um packing up for my second bout of maternity leave I was, I'll never forget this day because I was cleaning out my cupboard. I had a nice corner office at Middleton's. I was cleaning out my cupboard that was full of high heels. (laughs) And um, my boss came in and said, hang on a minute. You look like you're packing up all of those heels. Like, are you, are you out? And I'm like, uh, you know what? I feel like I've done, I've done my time here. I've done a lot of work, but I feel like, you know, the next step is kind of imminent. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like I wouldn't say that. And I, of course, at the time I didn't know that we were in merger discussions with um, Kano Gates. And um, he said, oh, I just wouldn't say anything like that. I think there's, you know, there's a bit more ahead and you should stick around for it. And I was just like, oh, what, what's there ahead? A merger with an Asia, small Asia firm? No, I'm, I'm kind of going to be moving on bigger and better things. Anyway, um, fast forward two months later, um, I had my, my son, my second son, and um, he gave me a call and he said, I kind of need you to come back to do to do a merger. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I have a child, I'm breastfeeding, no. Um, and I said, and what's this merger? Is it that merger firm? And he goes, well, no, it's like, it's a, a pretty giant US-based firm. And um, we were actually in the press at that time. There were rumours circulating about the merger between k Gates and Middleton. So um, I said, is it this firm? And he said, well, yes. And he said, um, can you come back and do even one day a week to help us with the merger um, kind of transition? 
this was about August, and I remember saying to him, um, okay, so when's the merger happening? And he said, 1st of January. <laughs> I just went, you've got to be joking. What is my job? And he said, well, we need to get 300 CVs up on the website by then. We need to have everybody done this, this, and this. You need to have gotten all the branding done. And I was like, great, okay. Um, but, yeah, I ended up doing that merger um, for the firm, which was an, a fascinating experience, I must say. Um, I can't remember any of it because I don't think I got more than about two hours of sleep around that time, but it worked for me because my second son, Isaac, didn't sleep in the night, which um, was fine because I got to work with the US while you know, he was away. <laughs> and then I would um and then I'd get some sleep in the in the morning and then Australia would come online and yeah, it was all all a big blur, but we did it and we got everything uploaded by the first of January and it was a it was a great success. You had you'd never done a merger before. Oh no, I'd done a merger at Linklater's in Tokyo. We'd right. merged with a Japanese firm and that's what I was I was actually headhunted from Lovells to do that merger. Right. So yeah. Because I'd had that merger experience, I think that 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 was also something my boss was keen for me to to tap into at, at Middleton's and Kano Gates. And again, mergers are fascinating. I think for people in business development, mergers are really good um, things to have on the CV because mm. they're they're amazing learning experiences culturally. And so you managed then to stay there post-merger, which took us to about, you were there eight years in total, as I said, it took you to about 2016. And then in 2016, you took a year off. I did. Are you happy to share why why take a year off? What happened? I was exhausted. <laughs> no. um, I was a bit exhausted. Um, I took a year off because, as you heard me say, when I was, so I've got two boys. When I had my first son, I took eight months off, so I didn't do the full year. Mm-hmm. And then when I had the second son, I took only three months off. So I said to my boss when I did the merger, I'm happy to do the merger. I'll bed down the team. But at some point, I do want to take my kind of maternity leave or I want to take some time out. So I settled the team in, I ended up staying three years post-merger, which is quite a long time. But I really wanted to take that break because at that point, Isaac, my second son, was what was he nearly four mm-hmm. which was a really good age and I wanted to just take the year out spend some time with the kids which yeah looking back was the best time because the ages that they were four and five were really quite special mm-hmm. and I got to take them to kinder I actually joined the kinder board of course <laughs> during that year I, was about, I was about to say you know you wouldn't just be you know going having massages no. every day no, no. Right. I did do the gym I did do the gym for a couple of hours a day that was also <laughs> exciting but I did come back and do you know board board stuff and but no it was a really special time and I do highly recommend career breaks particularly for people in business development if they've done a long stint in in BD yeah. for their career because yeah. it's tiring work and it's only that you t- when you take time out that you realise just how fast you were going and what you were doing. There is some great advice here, and particularly at this moment in time following the pandemic, which has taken its toll on many of us. I appreciate that not everyone can take a year off, but really the sentiment is about recognising when you need to take a complete break from work. Because, as we heard in our first episode, leaving it too late could have detrimental effects on your health. You came back from that period of uh, respite, shall we say, um, although it doesn't <laughs> sound very relaxing to me, but there you go. You came back from that period of time, you took a newly created role 
Yes. With Pinsent Masons who were just launched in Australia. They didn't have any BD function and they asked you to come and set up their function for the whole of the APAC region. So it was a greenfield site, no infrastructure. What appealed to you about, I mean, I don't really need to ask, do I? What, what appealed to you about that? <laughs> Well, I think you remember the call that we had when you called me about it. And I, I said, why would I do this? It sounds like a setup job. And your response was, but you're really good at that. Wouldn't you do that? Because you're really good at just building a BD culture. And yes, you know, you get to um you get to create a team. And that that for me was the appealing part. I made it clear and I think you made it clear to the firm that it wasn't about just hiring me and that was it that was about hiring me and building a team Mm. so the firm allowed me to do that I think there were four people when I started and I now have a team of 14 that's going to grow to 17 by the end of this year Mm. so it's a pretty good good growth in um, a five-year period of time and um, it's fantastic yeah it's pretty rewarding to to grow that space from nothing You've been probably one of the loudest advocates for promoting BD and marketing in the profession. As I said in my intro, you've, you speak regularly at conferences, you've written articles. What drives you to be so vocal about this? I'm really passionate about the career that I've chosen as like my life, my life career. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not the job that if I had been asked at the age of eight or 10 or even 14, what's your dream job? There's no, I don't think there's any any director around town that would have been like, yeah, I'm going to be a BD director for a law firm. That's my job. <laughs> but I think getting into the job and having achieved what I've achieved and feeling quite rewarded by that, I'm passionate about BD speaking up about, about that because I do think for the most part, we are really understated, mm-hmm. really understated. We achieve so much within our firms like BD people are super bright super intelligent and that intelligence just gets quietly noticed and we're not really out there going hey look at me I actually helped to win that work or look at me I helped you build that relationship with that client that's doubled in growth in the last 16 years or whatever or Mm. five years or Mm. two years whatever it is Um, and I think that that for me is the the piece that I'd love to see change because it's not just about BD people being talented. I would put all business operations or shared service, whatever firms call these people um, within their firms. Many people who are working within these firms have got extraordinary skills Mm -hmm. and mostly it's the lawyers who have the focus and the attention, which is fine because they're the ones generating the revenue. Mm -hmm. But there is so much contribution that others within the firms are making mm-hmm. to that overall revenue number. And that's why I'm quite passionate about, about this. It's not just about, oh, I've done this job and I want to be noticed and um, mm. I've done it for so long that people should look at me. It's mm. not about that. It's about giving BD people a voice across um, across the industry because we don't really do that well enough, I think, as a, as a group. And why do you think that is? I mean, people would think that marketing people and BD people would be quite, you know, would be quite sort of confident and assertive and outgoing and extrovert. Why, why do you think it is that they do sort of lay low and not not sort of bang their own drum? Well, I think because there's so much focus on that fee earner. Mm-hmm. If you think about the terminology, and I'm really big on terminology and definitions, and you hear that fee earner, like that, that just hasn't gone away for the two decades I've done this job, mm. even though they're lawyers, like there's this 
emphasis on they're the ones that bring in the fees. Mm -hmm. So without them, the firm wouldn't exist type thing. And I think that that's the thing that maybe sees BD people lose a bit of confidence. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if if it is a confidence thing. I've sort of thought it's a confidence thing, but because they're so in focus, these lawyers, as the ones generating the work and they're doing the hours and you can see them working on big matters and, you know, they grow beards during these big deals and they're all like losing sleep and stuff and there's that big focus. But at the back of all of that is is BD and we're the ones at the front looking at the opportunities and bringing those opportunities to the table and then it's almost like, we bring them in and then we're forgotten about type thing. And I think that BD people have just assumed that role of, okay, they can take the limelight. Mm-hmm. I like to think of BD people as coolly confident, like they've got the confidence but they're cool about it and they're not going to boast because they're like, why would I? Like I'll just move on to the next thing. We don't have the time. That's the other thing. We don't have yeah. the time to boast. Yeah. Several of the guests I've interviewed for this podcast series have talked about politics in these sort of large law firms. And and I wondered how you had navigated your career through politics. Was was the diplomacy that you learned early on useful or, you know, how, how do you navigate your way through these very complex organisations? That's tricky. And I, I would say that that's the hardest part of, of this job and these jobs. The politics do exist. And I think I remember hearing myself say 10 years ago, oh, I don't get involved in politics. I just put my head down and I just keep doing the work. But the reality is you are involved in politics the, the more senior you get within a firm. And it's about how do you navigate that in, like you said, the most diplomatic way to ensure that you don't burn your bridges for not only yourself, but for your team. Mm -hmm. So I'm always of the view that conversations face-to-face are the best way to navigate politics. And if they can't happen face-to-face as they couldn't for the past two years that we've lived through, Mm -hmm. you pick up the phone. Mm. And I think the other thing around politics is not trying to hitch your car or hitch your wagon to that car and not the other, you have to remain really neutral as a BD person. Mm -hmm. You can't be seen to be siding with one camp over another. Mm -hmm. I've seen that work really badly for people. Mm -hmm. And so it's about that neutrality and making sure that you're always advocating for the client Mm -hmm. rather than advocating for something internal Mm -hmm. where you, you know, you could be having these arguments and there's been many a time where I've watched kind of infighting and I've gone, well, what would the client say about this? And it suddenly is like that circuit breaker where everyone's like, yeah, that's right. We do work for ultimately clients, not ourselves type thing. And, mm. you know, but but it's it's difficult because unless you know that diplomacy piece and unless you are, um, unless you strive for harmony, which I do, I every day wake up thinking it has to be about harmony. We have to try to get to the best result and in the best way. I don't particularly like conflict, but at the same time, I don't avoid it because mm-hmm. conflict is sometimes necessary to get what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, It's great to hear some more advice like this on how to navigate politics, which is another regular theme of these interviews. I like how she recommends never to take sides, to accept that conflict is sometimes necessary, and that a good mediating tactic is to ask, what would the client want? You're a passionate advocate for the professionals, as I've said. What do you think the opportunities are? for the future of um, sort of professional services marketers? 
Oh, they're massive. I think the, it's there's never been a better time to be in law. Really, honestly, believe that. I said um, I said publicly at a conference the other day um, that the growth that the industry has had in the last five years far eclipses the growth that I experienced in the previous fifteen years. So, the growth um, around transformation, around firms being more than just legal firms. Like, and what I mean by that is firms offering up that talent that does reside within within their walls. So whether that's forensic accounting, whether that's BD designers or, you know, whether that's legal project management or the other kind of innovative um, products that you're seeing on the market. So I think what that presents for BD and our profession is enormous opportunity. And I've envisaged that, say, maybe as early as, and this is already happening in some firms, in as early as two years' time, I can see BD people just going into clients' offices, being almost part of the client and say, I've got a manager sitting in Sydney, I'll get to the end of the week and say, well, how was your week? And they'll be like, well, I went to this client on Monday and then I spent like four hours on, you know, Thursday at this client. I'll be like, great, that's really great. That's how I think our our roles will evolve, where we'll be much more Mm client-facing and almost integrated fully into that client experience. Which changes the nature of the jobs. I mean, it changes the nature of the type of people who take those jobs because arguably that's not a marketing job. That's a a client account management strategic job. Um, Now, outside of your incredibly busy work life and your incredibly busy (laughs) home life, You've also found the time to volunteer and are very involved. You're on the board of a charity called No to Violence. Why did you take on that extra responsibility? Uh, I've always been quite passionate about volunteering. I think I've volunteered from as early as probably 17, 18. I've always done some kind of volunteering. I find that it's difficult to find the time to do that, particularly in, in a busy job that I that I have. But the meaning that comes from volunteering for an organisation that perhaps cannot afford the skills of someone like me or, you know, it, it doesn't have to be someone as senior as me, like someone who's got a skill. I, it's amazing. And I joined No to Violence a year ago because I'm quite passionate about the domestic violence space, um, particularly in Australia. I think you'll you'll know the reports. Like it's quite it's a big issue and it has been for some years. Um, so you know, help the organisation with everything from helping them set up their their conference. They have an annual conference and, and I'm also working on a few other projects with them. And, you know, it's amazing that I do a little bit of work for them, which might be, say, an hour a week or a couple of hours a week. And then I suddenly at the board meeting get like a, a shout out saying, we just want to say really thanks to Deborah Philippon for helping out on her strategic advice on this. And it just makes you feel really good. <laughs> like I don't get <laughs> And it's not that I do these things because I just want to feel good. You know, my kids make me feel good. Like there's lots of things yeah. that make me feel good. But, yeah. you know, the, you don't, I think you said this, so I'm going to steal your phrase. Like you don't do these jobs in BD marketing for the flowers and chocolates. Right. Everybody knows that like when you're doing these jobs, you're not getting lawyers gushing and going, you did an amazing bid document for me today, Deb. I just want to say thank you. And then they're overly thanking you. Like it just doesn't happen. You know, there's, there's, there's a thanks. You're kind of like, I did a great job and that's it. You move on. But these organisations will take the skills that we have and just be so grateful for those skills. And I think that that's, 
that's really, again, the meaning that comes from, from helping out organisations mm. um, with your existing skill set because that's that's what I do. I help them with strategy. I help them with business development, with marketing, with corporate sponsorship, things that I am skilled in already that they kind of lack because they don't have the resources to do that. So, so would you encourage people generally to do that? To have- oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you don't have to wait to get to my level to do that. I think that even a BD executive or an assistant can put their hands up to volunteer for a board or, or even a committee. Um, boards have lots of committees and that's a really good way to get into the organisation and they need a lot of help, like I say, and, and we, again, don't realise the skills that we have until we get to other organisations where that's really kind of commended. So, so I strongly encourage it. Now, now, we asked you the interview question that Danielle Bond set for you. So I'm going to ask you now what your favourite interview question is so we can ask the next guest. Okay. Um, my favourite interview question is, and people get shocked by this, actually. I ask every single person that's come into my team this question. Um so I've seen your CV and I've read your CV and I want you to tell me something on something about yourself that is not, that's nowhere near your CV and that I couldn't really deduce about you. And that takes people by surprise. Oh, so that's my question. Oh, I can't wait yeah. to ask that question. And I really like it. <laughs> I'm, stealing, I'm stealing that for myself. It's a good one. My final question for you, if you had a message to the Deborah who sat on that plane en route to Tokyo with the world of work still ahead of her, what would your advice or your message be to her? Wow, that's a really hard question. Don't come back to Australia? No. <laughs> no, that wouldn't be my advice. Um, I was ready to come back to Australia after 10 years. Um, just, like, be more confident. And I think this is something that older people would say to their younger selves is ask this question. Just be more confident in your abilities, in your skills, in your talents, because it's taken me a really long time to feel that confidence. And I know that 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 sounds a bit silly, like after having 20 years of doing this job, but there are some moments where I still, it's not imposter syndrome because I don't, I don't feel that, but it's almost like you have to somehow feel really good in your shoes sometimes. And I think that that's what I would say. Feel good in your shoes even now. You're still young, but you've, you've managed to get on this plane and that's a huge achievement in itself. So be really confident in your shoes. Mm. That's what I'd say. And I would say probably also make sure you've got a cupboard full of those lovely shoes in your office. (laughs) And don't clear them out. (laughs) (laughs) Deborah, it's been so lovely hearing your career and life story. Thank you so much for coming on Deep CV Diving. People would be really interested in your story. Thank you. Thank you very much for interviewing me.